Sim Vanderen, welcome to the new school. Thank you. We both lived in West Marin for a long time. How long have you been here? <laughs> uh, well, I, I first built the cabin up in Inverness in uh, in '67, and then after uh, a lot of chaos in Berkeley uh, that I was part of uh, uh, in '69, uh, I uh, packed my wife and kids. Uh, left our comfortable mansion in the Berkeley Hills and moved into the cabin, and I wound up building a house around the cabin. Right. Um, and then, uh, so technically, I guess, in 60, 69, but uh, then and, uh, I, I wound up working for Jerry Brown in Sacramento for four or five years, and after that, moved back to Inverness and was teach went back to teaching at Berkeley, and try to run architectural practice from Inverness, which before uh, computers and, and internet was kind of impossible, so we moved to Sausalito. <laughs> right, you mentioned you worked for Jerry Brown as the state architect, right. and uh, you're really one of the iconic architects of, of green design and sustainable design. Um, and I've known your work for years, but we've never really had a chance to sit down and talk, so mm -hmm. I welcome this. Uh, you know, I, I read somewhere recently a quote from Goethe that has stuck with me. Maybe you know it. It may be famous. But he once said that architecture is frozen music. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, or uh, I think it was uh, the French cook, uh, Sylvain Brion, who said... Uh, um, Architecture is the um, um, is the cooking what uh, what uh, pastry chefing is. <laughs> it's uh -huh. like the icing on the cake. Uh -huh. <laughs> Very interesting, interesting. But do you think it's the icing on the cake, or in fact the underlying structural uh, vision of building? In some sense, is it icing or is it? Really core to it. Oh, the architecture? Yeah. Well, it should be the core. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it could be the core. Mm -hmm. I mean, increasingly in these days, the, the way, the problem that I see uh, uh, with architecture as with so many other institutions is that, um, uh, I mean, it's the larger problem of society in that, uh, uh, you know, e economics, which is <laughs> which is the ruling philosophy <laughs> or practice, uh, you know, says that uh, nature is a subset of economics, mm -hmm. where it needs to be a you know, <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere until um, we have a society that says no, economics is a subset <laughs> of nature, mm -hmm. and and uh, and architecture because it works for corporations mm -hmm. and it works for large institutions and some individuals uh, um, by its very na it is mm, has to live by the rule that architecture is a subset of economics <laughs> economics is <laughs> and it's along with nature and it seems that it's economics where economics intersects with all the bureaucratic requirements of codes and zoning and the like. Um, yeah, economics and a tiny bit of science. <laughs> right. But to what degree do you experience 
uh, code requirements for building as um, a necessary safeguard and to what degree are they an obstacle to creative regenerative design? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, I went through interesting transition because, um, because I was basically uh, in the 60s and in the early 70s, I basically even had a publication called Outlaw Building News. I thought a lot of the codes were just, uh, um, a lot of provisions were kind of ridiculous. A lot of them had been lobbied in by various special interests. And um, so I tended to ignore them. Um, and then I also started an institute, Fairlands Institute, um, which was around saying, look, the wheel of life is around uh, soil, around water, uh, around air, um, and um, what's the fourth one? Fire. <laughs> oh, yes, the sun. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. And space, the, mm -hmm. the Buddhist. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that needs to be the basis uh, for architecture and then the basis for, for life support. Well, I mean, the codes, you know, they're... Uh, their own, you know, like our, like most of architecture itself, it's way narrower. It's just talking about the building, um, you know. So even to do things like Farallons, uh, where first we did the house in Berkeley, um, that broke a lot of codes. It, it had no, because uh, the whole idea was well, even in the city, just as an experiment. What could we do in an urban lot if we disconnected from the Safeway, if we disconnected from the East Bay, from the water and sewer system? Um, uh, and uh, disconnected from PG&E. I mean, that was a thought experiment, you know, uh, just to see, not a not survival thing, but basically we didn't have the word sustainability then, but just towards something that made <laughs> seemed to make more sense um, and that required yeah obviously you, you have to be uh, we ran afoul of the codes there but Berkeley turned the other way then we started a much larger experiment out in Occidental or, or a rural version of that how far could we go towards the creating a school community um, where um, we grew quite a bit of our own food we grew our own energy, um, and um, we <laughs> limited water use. And there we ran, you know, uh, and we went through all of the process. We filed a master plan with the county, and they just, they never responded to it. And after a year, I just wrote them a letter because we had found, we had, we were oversubscribed with students who wanted to come that first year, and I said, we're just starting to build. Then they showed up in droves. And at the end of the day, I was personally responsible for 200 violations uh, of the state health code, building code, uh, restaurant code. <laughs> and, uh, and I think each of them carried about a $500 per day penalty. Um, and uh, um, a few weeks into that, I got a call from um, 
newly enacted governor, Jerry Brown, he said, you know, um, uh, what I want in this government is outsiders instead of insiders, because government has always, you know, it's always been insiders, and they need new thinking. And I said, well, thank you very much. I'm very honored, but I've just started this project, and I have to see it through. But after about three months, I realized, well, maybe power isn't such a bad idea, mm -hmm. <laughs> as Jerry called it, the embarrassment of power. And so then I wound up in Sacramento. But um, So just to finish the Occidental story, what happened with the 200 code violations and what happened with the project? Uh, well, the pro what happened is uh, that um, <laughs> um, as the state, now I'm in the position of being the state's ch chief code enforcement uh -huh. officer. <laughs> and I tell my SWAT team code of inspectors, you know, in Sonoma County, which is where we were, what what is the county-operated building which, you know, appears to have the, <laughs> is in the worst <laughs> environment? And they say, oh, that's easy, Sonoma County Hospital. It's, it's like what Halliburton was, you know, <laughs> 40 years later is what Halliburton was building for, <laughs> for the Iraqis, you know, <laughs> pipes that just leak sewage onto <laughs> patients in beds. And that's exactly what was going on there. So, um, um, and, uh, you know, so we, set, we did a full inspection and, and they had hundreds and hundreds of violations. And, and we said, you have to, seriously, I mean, because my people said, look, this place is really a danger to people in right. it. Um, so what happened is... Um, so an arrangement was reached. Um, well, no, I would not read Meacham arrangement. They, no, I said, no, we're closing it. No, I mean, about, not about the hospital. I mean that ultimately you reached a conclusion with the Farallon Institute that it could go forward? Uh, um, yeah. Um, actually, we started training their building inspectors. <laughs> uh -huh. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> In new technologies. Uh, no, I didn't make a deal with them. Um, I just want... I didn't make a deal with them, but... Um, yeah. Um, they... You know, now that place, it's now called the Occidental Arts Oncology Center. I mean, it's kind of a jewel. I was up there not too long ago, and, and they have taken things to much further than, <laughs> right. now, than I did. Now, that's an interesting example because I was looking at some of the projects you've done, uh, and it includes uh, the Wheelwright Center uh -huh. at Zen Center, uh -huh. the guest house there, the uh -huh. Abbott's residence, uh, the new lodge at Esalen, yeah. uh, the Lindisfarne Meeting House yeah. in Crestone, Colorado, and the Dharma Sangha Meditation Hall there, uh, Congregation Kol Shofar Renovation in Tiburon, the Linka Guest House in Tibet, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences uh, mm -hmm. uh, offices, and California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. The Chinook Learning Center on Whitby Island, which I know very well, Happy Valley School in Ojai, a Waldorf School at UC Davis, and then the, the Real Good Solar Living Center mm -hmm. in Hopland, and Green's Restaurant in San Francisco, <laughs> just to give, give our listeners a sense of the extraordinary projects you've been involved with. And uh, 
many of those places, by no means all, but many of them are familiar to me. I've been uh -huh. inside uh -huh. your work. Um, what does it feel like to uh, have a, a built uh, legacy like that? What is, what is your experience of uh, looking back on that uh, body of work, of what you've accomplished, what you learned, and, and what you regret? Hmm. Oh, that's a tall order. What does it feel like? Um, well, it's <laughs> it's uh, part of the work I was doing. I was mostly teaching during all that time. Um, um, a lot of really wonderful clients. Um, not all those projects got built, by the way. Um, that's one thing you learn in architecture. You know, <laughs> the rule is out of every um, ten projects that you that you um, put out your qualifications for, you know, you might get one, and out of every one you get, uh, out of every ten projects you get, maybe one gets built. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's one in a hundred. Uh, Somewhere is around there. Maybe better. But um, most of these got built, right? The ones uh, I just described. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of those got built. Mm -hmm. um, um, hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't do this alone. I have many wonderful collaborators. You know, my philosophy really is, uh, and this happened, uh, you know, for a long time, yeah, I mean, I had this, I, you know, I was known for doing a certain things. So people would come to me um, and um, um, and basically yeah I mean for me uh, I want to work with people that are aligned with my values and it's just uh, I, you know I don't feel I can change people's whole life gestalt and say oh no you you have the whole wrong idea this is what you should be doing um, so to me it's all around collaboration uh, um, for me, design, everyone is a designer. In my, my book, uh, uh, it's probably the most accessible book, Ecological Design, we, um, I boiled it down to five principles. What are those? Uh, the, the first is solutions start with place, <laughs> uh, which has been largely ignored by, by architecture, uh, modern architecture. Um, it's you know it's ruled by ideology, not by common sense, and the, so. I mean, I can remember, uh, you know, in the early solar days uh, of, of solar electric days, I I got a call from a, a hotel in Fiji, saying, um, you know, we've got these uh, solar collectors, but they don't seem to be doing very much. And um, I said, oh, and they said, could you come down and figure this out? And I said, um, well, what side of the building did you put them on? And they said, oh, well, south. These are North American produced. It's, yeah, put them on the south side. Um, well, you're in the southern hemisphere. It means they needed to be on the <laughs> north side. Oh. <laughs> I should have sent them a bill for $15,000 for that, but I just did it on the phone. So... Uh, and particularly if you read like, you know, 
sadly, you know, go around America and you see the same, <laughs> the same houses in Santa Fe or Phoenix as you see, as you'd see in, in Minnesota, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, this, uh, the ignorance of place uh, is so profound and, it, and obviously cheap energy and, and modern technologies made this possible. Um, so solutions start with place, number one. Um, the, second, uh, the second principle is, and the way we worded in the book, is uh, ecological accounting informs design. Well, that's just a, a clumsy way of saying what we know now is that um, uh, economics needs to be a subset of nature. And even what we do now, you know, even I think about, you know, my friend Paul Hawkins in the Lovins book, Natural Capital, and I realized, I thought about it the other day, you know, wonderful idea, but really horrible framing to simply assume that we can assume an economic value to, <laughs> to nature. I think it's a tragic, uh, I understand, you know, I, I think it's the wrong framing because it's, tra it, it's a tragic, tragically incorrect assumption. Interesting. Uh, well, it's better than not valuing it at all. Right. But. Um, and we're both friends of Paul's. He's uh, been. Well, they had a lot of trouble doing that book, yeah. you know. Yeah. It kind of broke up their friendship. Right. Um, and, and Hunter has, and Hunter I really love, has the uh, Natural Capital Institute. But mm -hmm. to me that, well, maybe it's okay. But I, I, I woke up the other day and I said, wait a minute, that's totally wrong. I mean, it's totally poor framing of the issue. You say, okay, well, these forests, these oceans and all, yes, we do convert them into money, but let's put the proper value on them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, maybe that's the first step, but I think we, that needs to be rethought. The third... So, so, on, just on that one, if that's the wrong framing, what is the right framing? I think the right framing, and I, uh, I don't know who the Lord's person, uh, I think it was in the, I don't know what I was reading, but it was, yeah, this person was saying that, yeah, we have it all wrong, that um, um, nature cannot be a subset of the economy. Right. Was it Herman Daly? No, it wasn't Herman Daly. Okay. See, and that's part of the problem because all the ecological economists, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the work is valuable, mm -hmm. but at some point we say, wait a minute. <laughs> right. You cannot let economics be the ruling science. Right. Okay. Oh, so and it's not a science anyhow. That's what I mean. So the first the is place. Maybe. First principle is place. The second, second is ecological economy. The second economy. is that, that we have to count um, for... We, we have to have some ecological accounting, not just economic accounting. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a, maybe mm -hmm. a simpler way to put it. Mm -hmm. The third principle is the duh, design with nature, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which can mean, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a very, very big subject and it did create a cluster of what that's about. But... Um, and things have gone further than there. I mean, in the book there, I give the example 
Uh, you know, when they earlier when they decided they drained the marshes in the Sacramento Valley and mm -hmm. San Francisco Bay. Uh, because of the mosquitoes and things like that. Mm -hmm. They got the Corps of Engineers to create a series of straight ditches. Mm -hmm. And they found out they had more, mos <laughs> more mosquitoes. Why? Because it's a biomimicry principle. They, you know, the Corps of Engineers, and this, and this also, see this in New Orleans in the Katrina disaster. The Corps of Engineers assumes that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Not for water, it isn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It, the shortest distance is, and if you you know fly over the country and you see all these meanders in these rivers, mm -hmm. it's a vortex. <laughs> mm -hmm. Beautiful. And later, um, Jay Harmon, uh, mm -hmm. the Australian surfer, mm -hmm. who invents, says, "Oh, well, if we want to move, if we want to say propel something efficiently, uh, a free medium like water or air, you don't use Archimedean spiral, which is two dimension." You know, propel, normal propeller on a Johnson motor or the normal propeller on a new tone fan in your kitchen. You have a logarithmic spiral because that um, creates a logarithmic, you know, three, uh, logarithmic spiral, and that's efficiency. You know, if you're the famous, you know, you can go to the store and get the Nautilus shell and you mm -hmm. look at it, it's logarithmic spiral, and you say, oh, that's a beautiful form. Well, why is it like that? Because the Nautilus is, you know, is uh, uh, mm, is this life form that that squeezing that goes moves along propels itself by squeezing water, mm -hmm. and it goes I think four or five miles an hour and it can go forever, <laughs> forever. So and and Jay Harmon says you know um, discovery is seeing what others have never seen before. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> yeah, I think it is beautiful. And, and, and in my latest book, Design for Life, you know, I I give that example. So, so nature is the model um, uh, designed with nature. It's three words, <laughs> mm -hmm. very complex, but <laughs> lots and lots of stuff behind it. The fourth principle is kind of the one that I mentioned at first is, I always assume everyone is a designer. <laughs> We're all designers. Mm -hmm. So the collaboration is the key. Collaborating with clients, uh, the design team, uh, collaborating. I mean, you know, the traditional model in, in architecture is you're the genius. You come up with the big idea. Mm -hmm. And then you turn it over to structural engineers. Hey, you make this building stand up. And then you, you know, uh, then you give it to the, the mechanical engineer. Uh, you make this building so we can heat and cool it. Uh, you know, that's this linear <laughs> mm -hmm. hierarchical model that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we talk about integrative. Now the whole profession talks, oh yeah, well we should have integrative design. Mm -hmm. um, and that is happening more than it is. But for, for example, the assumption is, and then this is, you know, this gets translated into, you know, now we have this leadership in energy and environmental design, the LEED rating system. Um, what do you think of LEED? It's a Band-Aid. Uh, it doesn't, it means keeps less bad stuff from happening. <laughs> um, because it doesn't really rethink the assumptions. It doesn't. Um, well, here's, <laughs> uh, in order to be lead flat in a building, you have to have 72 points. 
Um, more, of those, more than half of those points come from having an energy efficient mechanical system. By the way, my good friend uh, who's uh, president of the U.S. Green Building Council came from carrier air conditioning. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and my family company used to supply carrier air conditioning. I got fired by my father for <laughs> making an error on a carrier, on a very large carrier order. But um, uh, the point is, you see, it's still, it's the Einstein thing. The same thinking that created the problem can't solve it. Also, we're going to make slightly improved you know, mechanical systems. But for example, so, so lead platinum, you cannot get lead platinum unless you have a mechanical system. If, as I've done and others have done, you've designed a building that has a mechanical system, you can't be lead platinum. Because Isn't that I can only get two points for innovation. <laughs> like in the real good solar living setting, which is a small building, for a relatively I've small been building. Yeah, well, that place, I mean, that's, people have gotten PhD thesis studying that building. That building... Uh, it's a small building, but it's in an extreme climate zone, a really hot summers. That building, even on their big day, uh, Soul Fest, when they have that 20,000 people going through that building, it never goes above 75. Isn't that amazing? Um, well, it's just paying attention to how nature works. You know, it means orientation. It means solar mass. It means shading. You know, uh, all the stuff that our, a lot of architecture schools still own. You know, <laughs> teach. What, is, what is the fifth principle? So we don't. And the, the fifth principle is if you follow the other four, <laughs> if you paid attention to the other four, you, you would be doing something to heal <laughs> the planet and probably heal yourself. <laughs> it's, Which it's interesting. The transformative. You, you mentioned that because healing ourselves and healing the earth is the core value of Commonweal. Of this place, mm. that's what we're about. Okay, you know, I'm a brother. I'm yeah. a soul brother yeah. here. That's in this a game. core value. You know, our work with cancer patients and so on, yeah. and our work on the environment, comes out of that sense that, you know, our health and the health of the earth are just fundamentally inseparable. You know, it's just that that simple. And totally. Yeah. So I want to ask you. I want to take a big risk. I know this oh. is a big risk, but I'm going to do it anyway. The, the other iconic architect from the Bay Area that has also been at UC Berkeley that I know is Christopher Alexander. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Now, I have no idea how the two of you get along or don't get along <laughs> or anything else, but because I've read his work and read some of your work and found both to be profound, I'm curious uh, how you see his work and mm. how he sees your work. What's that wow. interface like? Oh, interesting. Well, I started teaching at Berkeley in 61, and in 64, Chris, who had been a junior fellow at Harvard, came to teach. And um, we actually taught together um, for a while. I think Chris is a, is, is a, is a genius. He's also an extremely difficult <laughs> person. Mm -hmm. uh, I helped him set up his center uh, for environmental structure, it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, we remained friends. Uh, uh, we always remained friends. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't continue teaching with him. I know his work very well. Um, um, 
I was a little disappointed because I sent him the manuscript for uh, Design for Life because mm -hmm. I thought, you know, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to. And, and I do know in his book, in, in the, mm, the pattern language, uh, he, mm, he kind of credits me for, you know, for a little bit of the thinking there, ecological mm -hmm. thinking. And we shared the common students. His co-authors were mm -hmm. all students of mine. Um, I think he um, is probably the most important of the, the 20th century um, thinkers in the design field. Hmm. Nowadays, he's probably better known in the computer world for his early for because he was a mathematician and and the pattern language is, is network theory, simple network theory. And he and I actually co did collaborate on a, a big study. Uh, in San Francisco of neighborhoods and neighborhood qualities and neighborhoods. And that was early network, that was network theory too. Mm -hmm. So I have a great respect for him. Um, I hope he's well. I, I've tried to contact him a number of times. I talked to his wife and assistant, but, mm -hmm. oh yes, he did come in and invite me to come to England for a few weeks mm -hmm. and so forth, but then a few weeks later he'd forgotten about mm -hmm. it. <laughs> what what struck me in his work, uh, I've been studying uh, the perennial philosophy at the heart of all the great spiritual yeah, traditions. Yeah, so I, this is, I've been studying that for 40 years. <laughs> uh-huh, interesting. Uh, specifically, I've been reading Ibn Arabi, the Islamic Sufi mystic. And, oh, and, you'll, uh, you'll need to fill me and, in. Uh, but one comes across Christopher Alexander as a traditionalist thinker. Yes in the school of traditionalist thought that has come out actually uh, largely of the Sufi tradition and has a whole bunch of interesting people in it. But the thing that strikes me that seems to me a fruitful interface with, with your extraordinary work is that your work, as you've just described it, focuses on design for life, ecological design, design with nature. Yeah. And one could say in some ways that Christopher Alexander's insights, one could say in some ways that Christopher Alexander's insights um, seem to emerge largely from the study of traditional communities, housing and traditional mm -hmm. communities, and how also that everyone understood design, that everyone originally before modernity oh, and modern yeah. architecture developed, that everybody understood design, but that the, the focus was on how hundreds if not thousands of years of a traditional way of life created a situation where everyone knew how habitat should be designed so that the patterns of life that mm. were part of that particular tradition, you know, worked in effect. And obviously that included nature, but his emphasis seems to be more on traditional patterns of life of human community. And then again, as a traditionalist, he seems to believe that when the traditional patterns of life were broken and we entered modernity and all that stuff, that we lost those patterns and lost the collective sense of of design that was part of those traditional societies. So I just offer that momentary sketch to ask whether 
that resonates for you as a kind of a comparison with your work, that your work seems to be inspired by what we can learn from nature, that his work seems to be inspired by what we can learn from patterns of living, mm -hmm. and that the two really are just sort of different facets of the same thing in a certain respect, but they have a different emphasis on the origin of their inspiration. Is that a fair statement or not? Um, well, I don't really, I, I don't remember really ever having conversations with Chris about where the idea, where mm -hmm. the ideas came from. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Sufism. I never had a discussion with him. I can't I'm not ever saying that he was oh. inspired by the Sufis. It's oh. just that the traditionalist school of, of philosophical and spiritual thought. Uh, uh, that, uh, which is a very specific school, that some people associate him with, not that he's oh. part of it, C comes out of a Sufi tradition. Um, yeah. Well, I think there are there are many. Um, there is a lot of there is a lot of congruence, and I'm sure mm -hmm. that's why mm -hmm. initially we were mm -hmm. we were attracted towards mm -hmm. uh, working together. Um, I, he's not a collaborator. <laughs> I hear you. He's very definitely not a collaborator. Mm -hmm. um, um, I know in his teaching, it's totally my way or the highway, mm -hmm. uh, which is not my way of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so um, let's move on to something else because I just wanted to ask. He's kind you of about a polymath, him. you know. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, what are you working on now? What are you thinking about now? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, right now probably is from checking around, I'd say, uh, uh, you know, 50, at least half the architects are not working. Right. <laughs> um, so because I kind of, of the financial collapse. Yeah, financial collapse. And um, um, so uh, uh, I'm kind of, you know, uh, Involuntarily retire from architecture, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, what I'm working on, I, I'm, you know, one of the things about me is I was very driven by vision, um, and so I would start projects, and I've done a lot of, you know, to me, I've done a lot of projects where trying that integration. Oh, um, we, growing food. Mm -hmm. So I've started, I started a lot of school gardens, mm -hmm. not the one here in Bolinas, but mm -hmm. many, many other school gardens. Farallons was all around, oh, how much food can we grow and how mm -hmm. little water can we use to do it with? And I can remember even the early days of Farallons, uh, my gardeners would say, hey, why don't you come and you know, spend some time with us? No, I don't have the time. I've got to raise money. I gotta <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the drill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do. Um, and now I have the time. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's been a, a wonderful experience. So now I, I am growing. <laughs> I am <laughs> getting into the detail. I, I understand, right. you know, for me, it's just like, oh, I understand. Yeah, 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 grow food. But get my hands dirty in it. Wonderful. Um, so you were, you were born in Holland in the Netherlands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I n knew your brother, actually. Jack. Jack, Yeah, right. mm -hmm. right. he's moved to California. Right. And... Um, uh, your family left there in what year? 
1939. Um, mm -hmm. How old were you then? Four. Do you remember Holland at all? Um, no, maybe my subconscious. No, mm -hmm. I don't have any conscious memory. Did your um, family live through the winter of hunger, the year of hunger in, in uh, the Netherlands, or was that lighter? It was uh, during World War II. I don't know. We were in, we were in yeah. We got in. We got out for, fairly shortly before the uh, wars. Before, before Holland the, was invaded, okay, which so taught did, me yeah. a lot. I mean, it's it's very related to what's happening in this country. It taught me a lot about denial. Mm -hmm. Not so much directly as a four-year-old, but but hearing from my parents. And now, why did you leave? Were you, was your family Jewish or just? We were, we were yes, we were Jewish. Jews that had been in Holland since, uh, um, for a long, long time. How long? Well, you know, we tried to chase the genealogy. My, my, my fantasy is that given that my last name is the same as Rembrandt's, that, that uh, one half of our family was uh, 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 it was maybe it was like one of Rembrandt's concubines and took uh -huh. the name. Um, the other side were probably Ashkenazi and uh, came from the German German side. We did um, my immediate family, my my siblings and their children, and their children, all of whom total about 40, 50 people. We did in 1988 while my mother was still alive. Did a we, we have family reunions every three years. We went to Holland, and we did go to the cemeteries. Uh, my, my grandfather founded the synagogue in Groningen. And it's interesting about the Nazis. Was he a rabbi? No, no, he's not a rabbi. He's mm -hmm. a businessman. Mm -hmm. uh, but he had the money to found the synagogue. Uh -huh. <laughs> of course, Amsterdam was mm -hmm. very famous in yeah. Jewish history. Oh, it's yeah. the place where the... Sephardic Jews fleeing the Inquisition yeah, and so forth came. Yeah, Spinoza. Yeah, known as the place. Uh, yeah, well, anyhow, uh, denial. Mm -hmm. And and this country is in this, you know, sad, sad, sad decline, I think, largely because of denial. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the oil. Don't, it'll be there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're Well, also, it's a lot of, Delusionary uh, arrogance. Uh, we are the greatest country on earth, <laughs> the greatest, you know. Uh, and so it's okay for us to, to start useless wars <laughs> or continue useless wars around the world. Now, uh, your, your family came to New York, New York City mm -hmm. from yeah. Uh, Holland. Yeah. And how did your father make a living? Well, we skip, we, part of the problem was that my father was a partner in a family business, um, and we were, we were very well off, but his, when he said, we're, when he told his father, well, we're leaving, and he said, well, too bad, you get, you know, no money, it all stays mm -hmm. here. And then, of course, that was all lost. And, um, did the rest um, of the family die? Or did, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. Do you know uh, where? Which camps? Yeah. Um, Auschwitz, mm -hmm. primarily Auschwitz. Um, uh, I just don't have the heart to trace all that. What, uh, what impact did the death of so much of your family 
in Auschwitz and the Holocaust have on you personally as a child growing up and as an adult now? Um, I just gave a talk down at Lindisfarne <laughs> in, uh, in Santa Fe uh, and uh, um, impact. It, it, the impact was indirect. It was it was mostly through the fact that my that that growing up, well, actually the impact. You know what the net result was? That's what got me connected to the the natural world. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because that's what when you found solace. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you've written about that, how that little slice of nature in yes, New York, exactly. and the backyards and so on. It, exactly. Because what solace. happened is, you know, my parents were from the generation that, you know, they didn't share their feelings and so mm -hmm. on. So here is a kid growing up then in, in, uh, in Queens. Um, um, I could feel grief, sadness, worry, but it was never talked about. Um, um, and so I, th I felt guilty. What have I done wrong? <laughs> and I felt uncomfortable at home. I mean, I was treated well, but the, there was just all this unspoken grief. And so, yes, I kind of found myself in these, what I call little haggard pieces of nature left over as the war started and the building stopped. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd say that was the, you know, that was uh, the major impact. And then it also set me on a journey toward perennial philosophy and cultural history and that because, you know, even as a 10 or 11 year old, I'd say, oh, I, I don't understand. Here's Germany, which was the, you know, the wellspring of science and, of, and, and culture of, and culture and and how did it become this this monstrous thing yeah. and and I think it was Bill Thompson that first turned me on to Jean Gebser's book uh, the ever-present origin and the whole idea that you know as we move as we move through these very few major cultural shifts in culture uh, how do you know when one is on the ver seems to be on the verge of collapse is when you find deficient, what he calls deficient forms of the earlier. So uh, take a look at <laughs> this country today. Supposedly it's supposed to be a, ra you know, we're the high state of the rational mental, <laughs> uh, the rational mental stage of, of uh, humanity and yet it's totally filled with magical and mythical thinking. So we share this deep interest in healing ourselves and healing the earth, and we share a deep and lifelong interest in the perennial philosophy. And I'm very interested in your journey uh, into the perennial philosophy. By the way, for listeners, the perennial philosophy is a phrase of Leibniz and Aldous Huxley, who spoke about the perennial philosophy at the core of all the great spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, that is also an insight of many of the great mystics of all the great traditions, yes. that there's yeah. one, one truth and many paths to the truth. And that that, um, uh, let me pose it to you this way, actually, because it's something I've been thinking about. Uh, when one studies the mystics in the various traditions, they are often acutely aware that the tradition that has nourished them, its external form, 
um, its laws and regulations and its sense that it is the only way to God um, contrasts with their burning intention to realize God or realize connection with the divine or the source or whatever Taoist or Buddhist uh, parallel you want to use in their own lives. And that so the mystics tend to be uh, close to that core of truth at the heart of the perennial philosophies. And then the, the shells, the external forms of these religions, which both protect and um, limit uh, what the mystics can say, are the ones that see themselves as separate from the other traditions. And um, what interests me now is that these mystical traditions have come to the fore. Uh, they used to be esoteric, but now whether it's Kabbalah and Judaism or Ibn Arabi and, and the Sufis and uh, Islam and you know you could go around the world and look at the different things. Many people are being attracted to the essential core as opposed to the legal exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether this isn't the, if the universe is alive mm -hmm. or if the earth is alive or if there really is an effort to save humanity from the destructive pattern we're in, I'm wondering whether this movement toward the mystical core is not a way that mm. we can all meet there mm. and recreate a direct sense of the divine, uh, you know, a life-saving sense of the divine, and recognize the perennial philosophy. Now, that's a hypothesis of mine, mm. but I'm just curious about your journey wow. into this area and mm. what conclusions you've reached about it. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that's that's the way you stated that is is very much the way that I that I feel. I mean, I um, um, I was bar mitzvahed, and and that was the end of formal religion for me because my rabbi, who I did love, was uh, fired by his congregation, who were, who were largely uh, refugee Jews because he was he was a fourth generation Kentuckian and and he was not a Zionist. <laughs> mm -hmm. and when I grew up, you weren't a Jew unless you were a Zionist. Mm -hmm. And when I see the the tragedy of modern Israel, it just turns my stomach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would not. I mean, I was offered a professorship at the you know visiting professorship at the Technion, and and I said I can't do that. I, 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 when the when the when the persecuted become the prosecutors, it's the end, <laughs> and it will be a, I think it will be a sad ending. Um, so formal religion, you have all kinds. Um, no, no attraction for me. So yes, I gravitated, but I do. Uh, what are the forms, the readers or the experiences? What are the forms that your inquiry into the perennial philosophy has taken for you? Well, I uh, probably haven't read as, as much as you have, but, mm -hmm. but um, um, uh, the forms. Um, how do you experience it? How do I how do I experience it in, in my yourself. being? Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm. 
increasingly deeply, <laughs> mm -hmm. particularly since um, I moved back to Inverness uh, about five years ago uh, from beautiful, uh, you know, place on the water in Sausalito because I just had the feeling this is really my home and I felt being on the water is wonderful, but I need to be closer to the soil. And then because, you know, of what's happened in the economy and so on, I found myself having more and more time to actually <laughs> be with myself, which I never was because I was one of those people, you know, I was driven by a vision and I was always in the, <laughs> pretty much always in the future or the past uh, and um, was not accessible. I was not accessible to myself, <laughs> much mm -hmm. less to a lot of other people. Uh, last weekend was with a wonderful woman uh, who was a former student of mine and then a colleague and and she was saying to to my beloved, you know, Sim has just totally changed. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's a totally different person in the last few years. And it's not it, and it's not been through any formal reading or so on. I think it's just been, oh, oh, this is how it can be. Also, uh, uh, one of my colleagues in Lindisfarne, uh, um, um, Perzi Yakan, a wonderful, what a wonderful human being. Yes, Sufism. I have been reading a lot of Sufism, and and uh, there are a number of Sufis in this area, and. and uh, Llewellyn uh, uh, has been anonymous in, in our community for 25 years, and I heard him speak. Llewellyn few, Von Lee. Yeah. He was wonderful. Of the Golden Sufi Center. Yeah. Very uh, so, remarkable teacher. Yeah. Yeah, a remarkable teacher. So, um, so, I mean, I tend to be the kind, I am still always an outlaw. I'm always skeptical of any form mm -hmm. of dogma. Mm -hmm. But I, I find, um, yeah, in the perennial, the, 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 um, uh, these people that speak with a certain voice, um, I can, you know, it's a, my mind is working, but it's kind of a visceral, uh, a visceral uh, phenomena, um, and and you know, I find it. It's not as easy to talk about because you know we've seen in this culture all these people who have answers. Whether it was you know went through S with Werner Erhard, and you see this is <laughs> this is. Uh, you know, the people who have the uh, marketing, their answers to spirituality, so. Right, I'm uh, as allergic to that as yeah, you Yeah, I'm just allergic to it, so. And I also want to say for myself uh, that, you know, mentioning the, the Sufi tradition, I, I've sort of, in the last 30, 40 years, really immersed myself in the Jewish, Christian, mm. Buddhist, yogic, Sufi, and to a lesser degree, Taoist traditions. So I'm not, I happen to be reading a mm. good deal in the Sufi tradition right now, but I want to be clear that it's not a, uh, to me it's simply, I guess the thing 
for me that speaks to me right now is with this enormous confrontation between Islam and, oh. and Christianity and Judaism, it just seems to me that if we can't understand the beauty of, you know, the Islamic as well as the Christian and Jewish oh, and course. Buddhist and yogic traditions, we're just going to cause an enormous amount of suffering. And, but we not yeah. will, we have. Yeah, so I just, I'm reading it in part just in, as a personal act of um, belief that, uh, that we should understand all the great traditions, you know. But our present w way is we're bringing out the worst of all of them. <laughs> well, that's true. You but know, I, what? <laughs> the worst is coming out, but it also seems to me, I mean, I love, uh, you mentioned Paul Hawken earlier, yeah. and I yeah. love his book, Blessed Unrest. Yeah. In which he says, if you look at the problems that we face, you cannot help but despair. And then he says, but if you look at the people all around the world working on the problems, you can't help but have some sense of hope. And so my point of view is it's not given to us to know whether we are going to, quote, save the world. You know, I mean, people have been trying to save the world for thousands well, of years. Well, and, that, and that's another, right. you know, it's smug thing. Right. The planet's not asking us to save it. No, no. We not. need to, if we care about humanity, we need to save humanity. Exactly. Now, you cannot save humanity unless even you save the infrastructure to support it. Right, exactly. But, <laughs> but even saving humanity is a tall order. Oh, sure it is. <laughs> but I, I can't, you know, go in these hotels, oh, save the planet, you know, yeah. don't use, use one towel. Use, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you're trying, you know, come on. Marriott is trying to you know, improve its bottom line. So, what's all this save the planet crap? It's just another. It's just another self-serving marketing. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, know the story that the environmentalists got together with the uh, the the hotel unions on this? You know, use one towel uh, thing yeah. in the hotels. Yeah, and the unions supported it. Yeah, and then when the hotels adopted it, what happened was. They needed fewer yeah. hotel workers, <laughs> and so they fired the union people as a result of the I union didn't know people that story. supporting. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very sad um, story. Yeah. So, last thoughts? Anything? Well, my work now is I, I'm just trying to do these things in our little piece of the woods here in West Marin. Uh, a few years ago, I was kind of instrumental in starting something which is called West Marin Community Conversations. It started around, you know, this, this community, you know, because my feeling is unless people, you know, we're in a small little food shed here in, in a really unique area with a lot of smart people, but a lot of those people don't talk to each other. <laughs> they can't because they have different opinions. And, and I'm, I, most of my life, I've been pretty, you know, I don't suffer fools, people I think fools gladly. And w big change for me beside the fact that I'm n now engaging with my hands and a lot of the things that I always engage with in my head. And the other part of it is that too, in the community, I'm, I'm, um, I spend a lot of time listening to people I don't agree with, who I do respect. If I absolutely don't respect them, I don't want to talk. I have a hard time, but, uh, and learning other people's points of view. And then looking, and we, we have these community conversations, which 
uh, turning out to be quite successful. Um, and in terms of getting people who are really sharing different points of view and, and, and also exposing issues. I mean, for example, you know, where we live here, we have a huge invisible population. Um, and uh, and there's a whole set of issues. You mean Latino population? Yeah. So, yeah, what's on my plate now is being present. <laughs> Sim Vanderen, thanks for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much.